It's a very, it was a very polite silence, so you know, it's good. Uh, <laughs> well, there are things in this world that we don't know. Like, everyone knows that you don't know everything. But there are also things in this world that we don't know that we don't know. Like, I don't know maybe the mass of the sun, but I know there's a sun, and I know I don't know it. But there's loads of things out there that we don't know that we don't know. I'm not going to go another level. That's the only as far as we're going. <laughs> there's some things we know a lot about. Like, the progress of sciences over millennia has given us loads of information about loads of things. And some people have a lot of knowledge in one kind of specific area. Uh, But I think what that progress of science has taught us, maybe at the very least, is that things that we thought we knew about, on closer look, actually didn't know that much. I mean, think of how people treated the bubonic plague during medieval times versus how people have been interacting with uh, the plague of our time. Now, even though we as humans do know a lot about some things, it turns out we don't actually know a lot. We don't know a whole lot. In fact, just take, I don't know if you ever heard of this, uh, it's more than a concept, it's a reality of dark matter, which is like the existence of stuff that makes up the universe. We don't really know that much about it, except that there's six times more dark matter than visible matter in a universe, like things like this and like this, all the things we can see and touch. There's six times more of this dark matter that we don't really even understand what it is in our universe. That's just one thing. Now, how about um, how memories are stored, how they're retrieved? Biologically, we don't really kind of know all the information about that. We have some ideas, but we don't really know. Where thoughts come from, like where, how do we think? Even as we use our brains to think about how we think, we're clueless to the origins of thinking, which I find very interesting. It's kind of like Christians at the Trinity. Yeah, I get it, but also kind of really don't get it. But also it really matters because it's kind of a big deal. I think that what we can learn from not knowing stuff is that all of us, every single one of us, regardless of where you are with Jesus, we all build our lives on things that we probably don't know much about. The foundation of who we are, the reasons we do what we do, believe what we do, feel what we kind of feel. For us as humans, I think all of us, we must have cracks in our foundation. If we don't know everything about everything, we must. We all build our lives on things that aren't fit for purpose or just can't really take the weight. Take, for example, the concept of consumerism. The message that our culture says about consumerism is that it's bad. No one has ever said, oh, you know, consumerism is actually, you know, it's, it's all right. It's pretty good. Uh, it, the message we have is uh, we don't want to destroy this planet, and so we're not going to, or we ought not to consume a lot. That's the message. But then the actual reality is we are sold things all the time. We're always told to buy this thing, go on this holiday, do this thing, and basically take up as much of your resources as possible to get the things that's going to make your life better. And this is actually something we can measure through spending habits and rising temperatures. Now, I don't think that that way of caring for the world is a good foundation to build upon, not only for ourselves, but for like the next generation. To give them one message and hypocritically tell them to do something else, that's not going to really help anything. There are cracks in that foundation. And maybe, I mean, so yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I remember exactly where I was when I saw buildings fall on the television in front of me. And I think maybe one of the scariest things about 9-11, especially as an American, was there were, it was obvious that there were cracks in what we thought was previously safe. If someone can fly planes into a skyscraper, who knows what other people can do. But what if we could build on something that didn't have cracks, something that actually could last, something that's in the right shape for what we want the building to look like, something that's going to not just kind of be here for a day and then go away tomorrow, but something that's going to be here for a really long time. 
and something that, that can take the weight of, of all the things this world gives us. Well, this is exactly what Paul talks about in verse 20 of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or an app, just keep that open because we're going to be moving around in chapter 2 a little bit. Um, this, this week we're going to focus on uh, verse 20. And we're going to be looking at what is a reconstructed foundation. All of us have cracks in our own foundation. We build our lives on all sorts of things. And all of us bring that into this community. So what are we searching for when we search for a church near me? When we're searching for a church, when we bring our lives to a church, what, what are we going to be building this community on? Well, Jesus invites us to build our lives on him, to build the church on him. And as we are reshaped through his foundation, this is not only good for us, it's really good for anyone who's around us who we love. So verse 20, just to uh, recap here, uh, Paul is talking about who we are. We're fellow citizens. We talked about that last week. Uh, fellow members of God's household talked about that last week. And here's verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And as we look at this metaphor that Paul uses of foundation, we're going to stick with his metaphor throughout. So we're going to look at three things. The shape, the suitability, and the sustainability. So we're going to look at those three things separate there. But before we get there, uh, we need to chat through something that the original audience would completely get, um, but maybe we might have some questions. First is this term, apostles and prophets. So what, what is Paul talking about there? Where he says, uh, this foundation is built on the apostles and prophets. Apostles is one way to talk about the, um, uh, the writers in the New Testament. The, the apostle, to be a right, to be a, this kind of apostle meant you had to experience the resurrected Jesus in, in like real life. And also these are the people who are writing these books that we have in the New Testament. There are not apostles like this anymore. There's, there's a title of apostle that some church traditions use that's very different than what this is because no one is writing the Bible anymore. The Bible's been written, it's done. The uh, prophets refers, it's like a catch-all term for referring to the Old Testament. Everything from the very beginning to the end, all the books of Moses, uh, the wisdom literature, the mi- major prophets, minor prophets, all that kind of stuff, that's what the Old Testament is about. The crazy thing is, while Paul is writing this book to this church at Ephesus, he's putting the authority of the word of the apostles in the same line as the authority of, of the Old Testament. Now, Paul is a very kind of well-researched, scholarly Jewish person. The Old Testament is God's word. And he's basically saying the words of the apostles are just as authoritative in our lives as the Old Testament is. And this is really early on in the church. This isn't some kind of like concept that someone came up with after you know, Constantine came into power in 300 or something. This is much earlier than that. The church had already recognized that uh, the New Testament is on par with the Old Testament. So now we're going to um, come up, we're going to talk about, because, because he's talking about the Bible, we're going to talk about the questions that lots of people have and maybe you have about the reliability of the Bible and things like that. We're not going to talk about all the issues because there's loads of them. We're going to talk about just about two. But I want to also talk about questions that you might have or questions that people in your life have asked about the Bible and you're like, I'm not really sure what I think or me even how to answer. Any questions you have of, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? Where does it come from? All those kind of things. If you go to RedeemerMCR.com ask, that's a form that um, takes away all your personal information. I just get an email of the question that you send in and we'll hit it up after the service, towards the end of the service. Uh, and if we answer it um, during the sermon, then that's good too, but we'll kind of bring it up anyway. Because I think it's also helpful to know that, oh, other people have these questions too. Like not all of us are biblical scholars and know all the information behind our Bible, right? And then that's okay. So we're going to get there. Um, but also, let's not miss 
apostles, prophets, and then Christ himself. So Christ himself, Paul describes as the chief cornerstone. We're going to get to this later on in, in the sermon. But for now, what Paul's saying, like, Jesus, who is described as the word, also these are his words. Like, they're not, it's not like you can be cool with Jesus and not be cool with the words of the Bible. Or you're like, I like the Bible, but this 10% I really don't like, um, but I still want to be cool with Jesus. You may not like it, and that's fine. You don't have to like all parts of the Bible. I don't like all parts of the Bible. But to submit under it, to surrender to it, is what, is what it means to be cool with Jesus and what it means to follow him. And that could be a really difficult thing. That's basically like a lifelong situation there. But know that the two are never opposed. You can't, be, can't follow Jesus and not follow the words that he says to us. Also, similarly, this is not a textbook to be mined for theological information. It's to help us worship a person, help us worship Jesus. And so if we're just getting it for knowledge for ourselves and that's it, we're kind of missing the entire point. It's just as bad. All right, so enough of the caveats. Let's just get into the, uh, the points, eh? Um, th- this will be up there. So if, if as we're going, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a good question, um, just go ahead and um, ask the questions, and we'll bring them up later. Let's first talk about the shape. So a reconstructed foundation changes the building itself. If you have a building with one foundation and you have a new foundation, the building's just going to look different. The foundation for one kind of building will be need to be different for another you don't have the same kind of foundation for a warehouse as you do for a house, right? The majority culture of Western supremacy, and that's really what it is, like the Western world telling you how to live, and if you don't live this way, you're out, it has a certain kind of shape to it. It has a certain kind of foundation that's laid for it. The church has a different one. Each subculture out there kind of has its own little take on it, and that changes the shape of the buildings. That's like this is like an, um, an aesthetic perspective, like a, a perspective of beauty. Take, for example, what the Rylands Library, our very own Rylands Library, um, this is an older photo, what it looks like. It looks like on the outside what it wants to be. When it was originally built, it was built to look old. It wasn't like when it was built, it was contemporary architecture. They made it, the architect made it look old to begin with. It looks scholarly. It looks stately. It looks grand. It's like... It's strong. Things are put together here. That's what the Rylands Library says. What about a castle? Different kind of foundation completely. It says, do not try and invade us because you won't be able to because we have these turrets and we're going to shoot you, all those kind of things. And a moat as well. A castle is going to have a different kind of aesthetic, a different kind of outside, how it appears in the world. I remember when me and Christina uh, first visited geographical Europe. We were in London for a week and then went to Paris for a week. In London, all the buildings were like powerful and strong. We went to Paris the next week. We didn't even, weren't even thinking about anything. We just, it just kind of hit us that the buildings there are a lot more um, focused more on beauty and intricacy than they are. You wouldn't say buildings are intricately beautiful in London. Buildings can be beautiful, but it's a different kind of thing. It's about strength in London. It's about beauty in Paris. The shapes they, they, they tell, they, are, they message out, they communicate what, what's going on inside. So what is the shape, or what ought to be the shape of our foundation? Well, if Christ himself is part of it, and the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, the shape of the cross must be a part of it. That's what this word cruciform means, which is like the shape of a cross. The shape of the cross is persuasion through suffering. It's not demanding anything from others, but inviting them into something. See, the prophets, they were longing for the Messiah. They, they, were, they uh, were seeking to see the Messiah that they didn't get to see yet, and that shaped who they were. It shaped them. 
the apostles following Jesus' footsteps uh, and following the way that he's called them to live, that shaped them as well. And experiencing uh, in, like in front of their eyes how Jesus died and how he lived his life, that shaped them as well. Cruciform shape is not a fighting stance. Like this doesn't say, hey, let's have a good chat. Hey, how you guys doing? How, how was your week? Yeah, you want to say something with me? No, you don't want to talk to someone like that. In fact, I was running oh, two days ago. I was running back from the city center, and two guys were completely plastered. Uh, one was on the ground just holding his head. The other one was kind of, I was running back, and he was just kind of wobbling around. He tried to, like, pretend like he was going to tackle me or something. I don't know what he's going to do. And then he thought it was hilarious. I didn't want to say, oh, hey, oh, I should have a chat with this guy. I think it would be really good. Like, no, there's a certain shape that he has. It's, it's not inviting conversation. He's trying to keep people away. An embrace also cannot begin with a closed body. You're not, if, if you want a hug, you don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't, don't do that. Well, American, after all, has to go to guns. Now, it is true that the shape of Jesus is one that's going to lead to hurt. It's one that's going to lead to harm. In fact, it's more true to say the, shape, the cruciform shape will lead to harm. It will lead to hurt. That's what happens. But our lives are supposed to be so close to each other, so open with each other. That's the perfect distance for someone to hurt you. But it's also the only way to receive love. You can't have one without the other. You won't be able to receive unless the shape you take on is cruciform. And regardless of the hurt that you will experience in your life, which all of us have experienced hurt from people. Maybe all of us have experienced hurt in the church. Regardless of the hurt we will experience, the harm that others are going to do to you, nothing comes close to what Jesus has already endured on your behalf and not when you wanted to have a nice chat with him. It's beyond your own experience. I mean, I've been hurt, so has Christina in ways that probably most people will never know. But the answer to that hurt is not to close up. That's our first instinct. That's a really easy way to live, to close up and not interact with anybody deeply. But to take on the shape of Jesus means to walk in faith that he is who he is, he's done what he said he's done, and he is in the process of doing what he's doing, which is making us new. And that allows us to live in the posture of an embrace and not a battle. The posture of the church is one of suffering for other people, not making others suffer. It's one of embracing others, not keeping others away. So what shape do you want for yourself? What shape do you, it, it, the shape that you want for yourself will influence the shape of this church. It, w- it will, this is how it is. When someone wrongs you, how do you react? When you get treated like a servant, as we're called in scripture often, what's our response? But let's also take a second here to talk about the shape of the scriptures. Can we trust them? Are they reliable? Like, surely they were like messed with at some point. Like how, how can we trust these things? Well, we're only going to go through two objections here. I wrote like seven, but we don't, we don't have time for all that. I would nerdily love to get into all that. And maybe you have other questions too. So if we don't cover them, definitely please ask them. Um, the first objection is the Bible's not reliable. It's a man-made thing. Like there's no way that this document has been able to withstand the years of time. And yeah, God's supposed to be powerful, but I guess he's probably not that powerful to do it. Um, here is, this is a lot of information. You have to memorize this, and I will test you in about five minutes. Um, so uh, as it says across the top, the transmissional reliability of the New Testament. Basically, how can we uh, rely on what was originally written by Paul's very hand to what we have today? 
And what this is doing is comparing other ancient texts that we have around the time of the Bible, older or, or newer. Uh, a couple things you might notice here. First, we have the amount of copies of the Greek New Testament uh, compared to other copies. Of course, this is like massive. In fact, this is about three to- we have three times more copies than we have of the second best, which is Homer's Iliad. So Homer's Iliad, you don't read it, be like, I don't know, how reliable is this, guys? Is this really the rhyme that, that was written then? It's probably not true. Of course, it would, the Bible, if it's true, has a lot more you know, import than if, Homer, if what Homer wrote was true, of course. But very few people will say, oh, this is not real, but um, very many people will say that's not real. So there's about three times more documents in the second best. The other thing that's really important about understanding reliability is how close the copies that we have in hand to the actual writing of close to the event. Like, what's the time gap there? If there's a large gap, it's probably not as accurate. If there's a shorter gap, it's probably more accurate. The Bible is the shortest time gap of any other ancient text that we have, 40 years. The, clo- the next best thing that we have is Thucydides' history, which is a 200-year time gap. He's, where is he? Thucydides, yeah, he's right there. So you can see, even like graphically, it's like it's kind of close, but nothing compared to the Bible. In fact, the Bible is five times more closer to the original writing of, of the original manuscripts than any other ancient document that we have out there. In fact, the oldest piece of the Bible you can see at the Rylands Library, although, is it closed now? It's not closed. Yeah, yeah, that part. That part, yeah, yeah. So you can't actually see that, the oldest part of John's Gospel that we have, but it's, it's here in Manchester. That's, hey, for a nerd, yes. Basically, what we have, no other ancient text is more reliable than the New Testament if we're only looking at data. If all you have is the scientific data in front of you, the most reliable ancient document we have is the New Testament. So, that's objection number one. Oftentimes, when people say it's not reliable, it's probably because they probably have not looked at the data themselves, which is fine. Most people don't. But it's good to know what the actual information is. The second thing is uh, the Bible... It's just man-made. It's just a guy writing. Okay, maybe it's reliable, but it's just like, you know, a few guys got in a room and they wrote some things in order to get power for themselves. The Bible is from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's 40-ish people writing over a gap of like 1,500 years. What you're looking at here is every chapter of the Bible, each little color is a different book. There's the Old Testament. Here's the beginning of the New Testament. Each one of these lines is a cross-reference to another book. Either here, like a little one, or like a huge one from the beginning, maybe even all the way to the end. And what you have is these, uh, the biblical kind of nerdy term is intertextuality. The Bible references itself, uh, I think it's like over 63,000 times. If you had one person writing, that would be insane. You'd be like, that is like the craziest genius we've ever heard of. But then you have 40 people over 1,500 years in different places, in different cultures, People who were writing who didn't know other people were writing, and yet they all reference themselves that many times? That seems to be beyond something that a mere man can do, let alone 40 men together. Plus, it looks beautiful, right? It's pretty. No other holy book has been held up to the scrutiny that the Bible has had over thousands of years. And I think that's a good thing. It should. And we as Christians should welcome those questions. Because if we believe it to be true, then I mean, there's really nothing to be afraid of. It's just going to kind of show it to be um, as reliable as it is. And yet, in all of the scrutiny that the Bible has received, there's never been anything actually sufficient to crack the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
nothing has come through for a Christian who's like, oh, no, we need to really suppress this information. Everything that comes through, any kind of new uh, archaeological discovery we have of a text that might be around the same age as something older, even something that might be older than what we have, has only served to actually show the reliability of what we've been reading over hundreds of years, every single time. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets is firm, and it's worth shaping us. Now, there are lots of other questions that we ought to have about the reliability of the Bible. If you want to um, bring them up today, definitely go to that website, and we'll chat through them. So that's the shape. Let's go on to the suitability. Uh, Foundations are built with a purpose in mind. Like I talked about the Rylands Library versus a castle. Like one is meant for a castle, one's meant for a library, one, uh, one other foundation might be for a pub. They're all going to have a different use. Now, the wrong foundation or a cracked foundation is disastrous for the building. What does it look like to guard against disaster and be fit for our purpose? In order to know that answer, we have to actually look a little bit back and find out, well, what is the purpose of the building? What what is our purpose? So if you're in chapter 2 of Ephesians, um, head to verse 10. I shall have it on the screen as well. Uh, This is verse 10. Uh, talking about who we are God's people, um, actually really all God's humans, all, all of created people. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is like a, a purpose for, for humanity here. Handiwork is like a, um, uh, like a craftsman, an artisan, an, an artist. We are God's like, works of art. I think probably some, trans, some translations might even say like we're God's poem that he kind of created. We're God's art through Jesus, created in Christ Jesus. That's, that's how we, we get to be this kind of art. What kind of, we're created to do good works, but like what kind of good works is, is, is that? We're created basically to reflect the same kind of good ways that God works in this world we're supposed to reflect in this world. This is what actually we've been learning in our missional community projects, is, is looking back at Genesis. We're called to act in the same kind of way that God acts in this world to bring life into what was previously dead before, pushing back the darkness, revealing the light that, that, uh, that shines, that, in, that is the light of men. That's a really big calling. If someone's like, on your business card, you're not going to say, oh, I, I bring you know, dead things to life. It's like, that guy's got a bit of an ego trip. That's a massive calling. That's an, actually, it's an impossible calling by yourselves. It's impossible. But that big, massive calling also gets individualized because it gets worked out in each one of our lives. So I don't work where you work, vice versa, unless you're Alicia. You do work where I work. (laughs) You aren't called in my way. I'm not called in yours. Uh, That means you have a very specific role to play. I don't have the same friends you have. You don't have the same friends I have. You have a very specific role to play. God has in store specific ways for you to love other people, only you. God has in ways, specific ways for you to bless other people. Only you. And he's done that. He's prepared this in advance. He's like anticipating you responding to this in a way that's going to bring life where there wasn't life before. That means if you don't do those things, who is going to? That's a high level of responsibility. That's a weight. And that will be an impossible weight on the wrong foundation that will crack your foundation, that will crush you if the foundation is wrong. Because it's a grand calling and it's also quite personalized. So if this is just like a quick sketch of our purpose, and this is a massive purpose, a weighty purpose, uh, 
that's, and we've already looked at a few cracks that we can have in our foundation. And if, if we maybe concede the fact that yeah, we don't know some things that we, ought, that we don't know, how can we have something suitable for our purpose? Well, this is exactly what Paul's talking about here with the apostles, the prophets, and Christ himself. The Old Testament and the New Testament and Jesus, they tell us how to live. They tell us uh, how, how to base our lives so that we can do more than withstand difficulty and survive, but actually like, live into that big purpose to truly flourish. They tell us to look to God first before other people. They tell us to make space in our lives for us to focus on him. They tell us what wisdom is, how to make your way in life in times of famine and in times of feasting. They tell us who God is, what, what he's about, what, what his passions are about, and, and how he works them out in this world for our good. And the apostles and the prophets and Jesus, they tell us who we are, because we can't really know who we are unless we engage with the one who made us. And over and over and over again, with broken voices, the stories in Scripture tell us that any hope worth anything in this world comes from the Lord, meaning comes from seeking Him. And only the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus can really take that weight of a weighty purpose. We can't bear that. That's crushing. To try and do it on your own, that's called empty religion. It's not a good way to go. It's not fun. And every other foundation that we have is just simply not suited. And when we find cracks in the foundation, when things go wrong, I don't know if your first response is like mine, is trying to like make life a little bit easier, to kind of do a little bit less, to give up a little bit on that big grand calling that God has us for. But it may not be the weight that's the problem, but the weakness of our foundation. I need to say that again because I need to hear that for myself. It may not be the weight of our problems, but it might be the cracks, the lameness, the brokenness of our foundation that, that is the problem. And in this life, God will give you more than you can handle. Like that should be the crocheted thing on the pillow. You know, He will give you more than you can handle, but not more than he can bear. He will always be there. Because you see, the foundation isn't just this, it's also Jesus himself. He's there, and he's more than enough. The foundation we've been given as a church is the platform that allows us to withstand difficulty, yes, but also allows us to flourish in this world. And that's not always easy to do. So that in our creating, we're going to create. In our creating, we can create good art, art that's generative, art that isn't destructive, but that gives to others and keeps giving to others. Art that we can be proud of and art, art that, that can bring life to others. So if all of this is true, or even if like some of it is, Shouldn't we get to know it? Shouldn't we get to know what these words mean? If we have this amazing gift, what good would it be doing like, to lock it away until for a couple hours or maybe at the most a couple hours on a Sunday? Okay, we looked at the shape. We talked about the suitability. Um, now let's talk about how this thing will last, sustainability. This foundation, it took a really long time to build, right, over 1,500 years. It's going to take a long time for, it to make, for you to build on top of it as well. We don't want to build something that's going to last one night or one storm. We want something that's going to last, regardless of whatever's going on in the culture or circumstantially. We want something that's going to last. So let's think of the nature of this foundation that Paul's talking about here. Your individual walk with Jesus, your own relationship with him, is a long-term community project built for the long-term and for community. Redeemer, we, together, the, uh, the, uh, are a long-term community project built for the long term and for the community, for people who are here and people who aren't yet. And if we think beyond us, a larger vision for greater Manchester itself, 
what God is doing with his foundation. It's a long-term project where communities are working together in order for the gospel to go forth. Something sustainable in the right shape and suited to purpose, unfortunately, does not pop up overnight. I wish it was. I wish that could be so. But that's not how it's going to work. It takes time. It's slow work. I've heard that it's good work. I think I believe it. It's really difficult to believe that. The foundation took a long time to build, as will the building. You know, I found this out after looking at um, doing research on actual foundations. It, takes, it can take a foundation, if you, once it's poured, a long time to strengthen and to cure, like 60 days or something like that. You can build on it while it's not completely cured, I think, depending on the building. Um, but it's not really until it's taken some time that it has the strength. So if it takes 60 days for a physical building, let's have a little bit of patience in our own lives for ourselves for ourselves to cure up. It's going to take a long time for that foundation to cure in our own lives. The parts that aren't part of a lasting, sustainable foundation, when they fail, we think it's the worst thing in the world, but it's actually really good when they do because that's a grace. That's basically God saying, I don't want your, you to build your life on something that's going to break 10 years from now. So I'm just going to break it now, save you loads of trouble. You're going to think I'm horrible for it right now, but I promise you it's going to save you loads of trouble. But now I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm going to invite you to build a foundation that can, that can withstand the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Now, Jesus actually talks a little bit about um, a sustainable foundation. In, uh, so we're talk- this is like building construction talk. Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're not familiar, the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus' most famous um, sermon he's ever given. That's the one that everyone hears about. He teaches all about God's kingdom, what it means to live in God's kingdom. At the end of it all, though, in Matthew 7, he says this. At the end of like basically the best sermon people have heard, people are like, oh my goodness, this is insane. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, two things there, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, COVID came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And he says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, streams rose, COVID came, winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. There's two things that are happening here, is listening each, both, there's two groups here. Both groups hear Jesus' words. We're all hearing his words. One put them into practice. The other one didn't. Putting them into practice is what gave these people the sustainable foundation when things all went awry. Sand's not sustainable. I don't know if anyone told you that. You've got to build a house, don't build it on sand. I don't know anything about building construction, but I, I'm an expert in that. What is sustainable is the rock. You build your house on a good, strong foundation. And it takes more than hearing, it takes putting them into practice. So the words of the apostles, prophets, and Christ himself, especially here, are meant for practice. If we don't practice them, we can know all the words. We can be experts in all the things. But if we don't practice them, that's not a foundation that's going to stay. That's a foundation that will turn to sand and will wither away. I don't know if um, anyone else is nerdy into uh, grand designs. Any other grand design fans here? Yeah, a couple, yeah, yes. All right, yes. Okay, you guys are my people. Um, I'm not the weird one talking about bluegrass. I was like, cool. Uh, me and Michael are there. Um, so, I mean, Kevin McLeod. Oh, let's get a picture of him. Kevin McLeod, he's so dreamy, isn't he? <coughs> I'll stop there. Uh, the, start of, the start of any, if you've seen any of these things, the start of any big project is the foundation. In 99% of these stories, 
It takes more time to dig out that foundation, takes more money to dig it out, more frustration from the owners. Like, ah, we think this house will be done in about six weeks. And then like six years later, they're still working on the foundation. It's like millions of pounds later. It's dirty work. It just doesn't seem like there's any progress. I think that's where I was thinking about that. I think that's where it's most frustrating for an owner is it doesn't seem like anything's being done. Like you said, you have a, a really costly hole in the ground that took you a few years. And you're like, what in the world have we done? We've dug a hole. A sustainable foundation. It doesn't always feel or look like what's going to be in our heads. Sometimes it just feels like digging a hole. That's, good. that's true of our church. We're just, right now, we're just digging holes. Hopefully one big hole that's going to be good for a foundation to be poured in. We're only three years into this thing. But God is patiently working with us. He's not impatient. He's like, oh, hurry up, hurry up. What are you doing? Hurry up. That's not God. That's me and my son trying to get ready in the morning. Often it's us who are impatient with ourselves, and then we blame God, think he's like angry with us about it. But he's not. He's patient. Let me tell you, especially in a community, idealism and perfectionism are complete enemies to community. You want something like this that's like completely perfect without any blemish. You experience real community that's going to have issues. And then the frustrations, sometimes they drive people away, and they don't want to come back. Idealism and perfectionism is the worst thing for community. Because it, does, it will never mean you're going to put something into practice because you're never going to be perfect. And so you never will put anything into practice. Think about, for another example, is your prayer life. We went six weeks with that prayer series. Yeah, six weeks is kind of a long time. We, hopefully we learned some things. We had stuff going on in missional communities. A real sustainable foundation for our prayer lives takes decades, not weeks. That's okay. That is completely okay. It should take a long time if it's something that's going to be sustainable. And as Jesus has told us, it takes practice. So your gifts, your time, your resources, are you putting your life into practice when you hear his words? Look, we're trying to start a church here. We've been in that process for a while. That means all of us have to be involved in some way or another at some point. We want the rock, not the sand. And as the church, the fundamental reality here is this. Like, this foundation is, is who you are. Like, when Paul talks about this, is consequently you're no longer foreigners or angels or, or aliens, but you are built on the foundation. Like, this is like a part of, it's already a part of your identity. It's not like you have to work to get this foundation there. It's there. It's like whether we recognize it or not or want to lean on it or not. We don't get there by working. You got here through Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone is, again, Deep dive into uh, building construction of foundations. I've been told, uh, so if I get it wrong, apologies. It just makes for a good illustration. Uh, a cornerstone is the first part of a foundation that's laid, but it's also how the rest of the foundation orientates itself. So it's the primary part, but also the part that all the rest of it is organized around. So you have Christ himself, the apostles and the prophets. Christ is part of the foundation, but all the rest of it is orientated around him. Everything is focused towards Jesus, because this is what Jesus has built and is building. And Jesus was broken so that our foundation will never have to be broken. We had cracks, yes, and he took them upon himself, saving us from the, our dilapidated state, eventual ruin, and reconstructing what we build upon. See, we get to be saved from foundations of the wrong shape, that's a good thing, even though it's a difficult thing. We get to be saved from foundations that are not suitable for that big, massive, personalized purpose that we have. We get to be saved from something that's just not going to sustain us in the long haul. So if you are in Christ, your life is held firm by the rock. 
It's what we also what we get to lean on. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself is the only way we can be shaped, the only way we can be made suitable, the only way we can say, stay sustainable in this world. And as Jesus was being destroyed on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And it's that same cry that we celebrate today. Forgiven for building upon foundations of sand and other things that really aren't going to take our weight. Freed to live out a weighty life of meaning on the rock. And that's what the Lord's Supper will always bring us back to. To a place of neediness. To a place of expecting. To a place of forgiveness. We forget this, of course, all the time. Which is why, and Jesus knew this, which is why Jesus said, do this. To remember me. To remember what I've done. A vital part of the foundation we've been given is Christ's work on the cross. And that's why we celebrate it as often as we do. So under your seats you have these, the bread and the cup. The uh, wafer symbolizes Christ's body. The cup symbolizes Christ's blood. Both symbolize what Jesus went through to become this foundation, to become the rock. Our death on him and his life on us. In a moment we're going to sing together. And as we sing, um, take, uh, eat and drink as, as you're led. We'll, as we celebrate together. Um, you should in, eat and drink with us if Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets is your foundation. Or if that wasn't your foundation before and now it is. That's who you should, who should eat and drink with us. You should not eat and drink with us if, he, if that is not your foundation yet. That's completely fine. We're really glad that you're here, that you're listening. Um, but we don't want you to participate in something that would be a lie. That's, that's what empty religion ends up being, like kind of outward lies. But for all of us who have Jesus as our foundation, who have the word... Allow it to take your full weight. You don't have to sort out life on your own terms. You don't have to carry it. Jesus actually tells us multiple times in the Bible, your burden is mine. Jesus has taken your burden already. Relax into him and discover that this foundation of Jesus is more than strong enough to hold you up. Let me pray.